Welcome back to the Testudo Times podcast. I'm Ben Dixon alongside Sam Ostry. Sam, last episode of 2022. Uh, we've been doing one a week since the start of the year in August, I think even before that. Uh, so we've been on a good roll here. How you doing? How you feeling? It sure is. I'm fighting a little bit of a flu game here. You know, I'm here the last show of the year. Wouldn't miss it for the world. Um, but uh, it's it should be a good one. It should be a fun one. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, a lot to get to. Last show of the year. I'm ready to go. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So we're going to start here with yesterday's big news or big day, should I say, early National Signing Day. First, before we even get into it, I want to give kudos to, you know, ourselves, Emmett, everyone else who helped with the site, Andrew, Ben Wolf, uh, and Damon as well for kind of getting those articles out. It was really a, a flurry of signings from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. yesterday and, and really a big day. So just just wanted to start there and uh, give thanks to everyone for their hard work on that end. But this signing uh, signing day, I think Loxley's got to be pretty intent with his class so far. The early signing period does not end until I think tomorrow. I think it's a three-day early signing period. And then back when the old National Signing Day used to be in February, that opens the the two-month normal signing period. But now I think it's, what, like 90 95% of uh, football players sign now. But right now, per the uh, 247 Sports Composite, Maryland's got the 34th best class in the country, which is – Pretty solid, all things considered. And then, of course, there's a, a lot of room maybe to grow there with the potential commitment of, of Nick Harbour in the spring. Um, and then there were a couple other four stars that were going after. Not sure what happened there. But, Sam, what are your overall impressions of this class right now and and just where Maryland stands? Yeah, I think Loxie did a good job. Um, you know, they've kind of been around that, like, 30 to 35 mark. Uh, you said they're 34 ranked in the country right now last year i think their class was 31st that 2022 class so that's kind of where loxley stood and he's done it by by really recruiting the dmv area and a lot of local talent it's like everyone's known for years now or not years but there's all it's always been rich talent in the dmv um in terms of great football prospects but maryland has really never put an emphasis on recruiting these guys until loxley got here and that's been his emphasis it's keeping the the local guys home um, you saw it with Rakim Jarrett. Uh, you saw it with Jay Sean Barham last year. You're seeing great local talent stay home and and stay in Maryland. And I think that was a similar theme that you saw with this entire class. In terms of there was no like there was no super big surprises or super um, huge gets, I would say, because no like five star guys. But um, Loxley clearly put an emphasis on uh, edge rushers. And being guys who can get to the quarterback, because look, th- this defense was actually pretty solid or better than expected this past season. But its biggest weak link was up front, and that was getting to the quarterback, and that was stopping the run. So you want to have edge rushers, defensive linemen. That's where you want to stack your guys in terms of recruiting. And even after that Penn State loss, I keep going that I go back to when Loxie was like, "We need to reevaluate everything how we do as a program," and that includes the positions and the people um, that we're recruiting to bring in because they got absolutely bullied in the ground game, and and they lost that game in the trenches. And it was the same thing to Wisconsin. You have to win November games in bad weather conditions um, in the Big Ten, and that's running the ball effectively with your offensive line and running backs, and that's stopping the run and putting pressure on the quarterback. So they they did a great job of. Uh, getting uh edge rushers and guys will be able to get, get to the quarterback it's rico walker is a four-star from north carolina dylan gooden four-star guy from um columbia maryland and and uh and then they one more four-star right who, who am i missing uh, neo avery the flip oh yeah of course they flipped him flipped him from Ole miss um he was originally committed to Ole miss and, and that's what loxie's uh gotten known for in recent years flipping guys on, on that last last couple of hours in signing days on signing day and he uh and he flipped neo avery Absolutely. And, and he's really become that quote unquote closer. And, and the guy has been able to close the deal. He flipped to Kim Jarrett from LSU. Jay Sean Barham appeared heading to South Carolina and now Neo Avery going to Ole Miss. And with these top three guys being edge rushers, Loxley mentioned yesterday that the top recruit in the class right now, Rico Walker, they're probably going to start him on the offensive side of the ball and, and see how he looks at a tight end before moving into edge. I think that's the luxury. These, you know, Loxley used the word twitchy yesterday. These athletic, really solid edge rushers guys who can get to the quarterback, which like you said, Sam was the probably their biggest weakness on the defensive end last year kind of allows Maryland the luxury, which they haven't had in the past to maybe mess around with some things here. And then we'll see how that recruiting class improves as well. Um, just wanted to, I think there's something to be said, Sam, because I think we talked about this yesterday. 
Loxley has kind of used this foundational advantage he has with the DMV in this talent-rich area. And even guys who aren't, you know, four or five stars recruit, they've, they've been able to develop into really good players. You look at Roman Hemby, for example, a local guy, not much was expected out of him. He's on track for a, a thousand yards after the bowl game this year. So I think there's something to be said with, yeah, maybe there's a lot of three stars and, and the staff is, is, or not the staff, people on the outside are overlooking that. But I think there's eight players from the state of Maryland and, and there's something to be said with how the staff has developed guys like this over the years and have really become impact players and perhaps star players for, for Maryland. Yeah. Develop, the developmental stage has been huge at Maryland for particularly skill players. Like you talk about running backs, wide receivers, and those guys over time, you've seen huge jumps from them. They may not expect. And Loxley talks about that, you know, this freshman class is important um, because they're not going to build through the transfer portal. They're not going to rely on older guys. I mean, you obviously have to at certain points, but they want to play their younger guys and give them reps because that's the only way you get better. You don't get better playing on sitting on the bench. You get better by live game reps. So even when they make mistakes, you want to continue to play your younger guys so they do develop and so that when they're in year two and year three, they're ready to make that jump and be huge impact guys. So that's why these classes are really important. Um, you know, always Maryland is, is has been known as a wide receiver U in recent years, even though the wide receivers production wasn't phenomenal this past season with high expectations, but they got a f- n- no uh, huge names uh, in this class, but uh, Sean Williams, Ryan Manning, a couple guys that certainly could make an impact, especially in a really young room next year, that wide receiver room where you're like Ty Felton's probably going to be the guy. Octavian Smith's going to be the guy. Um, just assuming Deshaun Jones comes back, obviously he'll be the vet and be the guy, but there's going to be room for freshmen, sophomores, younger guys to make immediate impact as the uh, tag of weapons. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how how much those guys get burned early on. Right. Now, I wanted to make one more point just about um, those developing those three stars. You look at what the Maryland defense has done, the secondary in specific. Deontay Banks might be a first round pick now. Edgewood, Maryland guy. Bo Braid, you could argue he was the best player in the defense last year. Clarksville, Maryland guy, River Hill. And then Dante Trader, Delaware native, native, but played at McDonough in Maryland. Those are three guys that the staff has developed into becoming impact and star players on the defensive end. And they were all three stars. So interesting point there. And, and to your point about the wide receivers, I, I, I feel like from what we've, I mean, I, I guess last year was probably the one or this season, excuse me, was the one year we probably were, or and everyone was hyping up this receiver room, but I, I, the wide receivers are never really a problem with this offense in recent years. We've discovered, I think these three stars will be just fine. Ryan Manning, um, Ezekiel, Avid, uh, Sean Williams, the guys you mentioned um, should be just fine. And then the transfer portal as well. I think that's a good segue here. Talk about kind of the guys they're going after here. I mean, Tyrese Chambers from FIU local kid who's, who's finally made his way from FCS to group of five to now um, power six, big 10 Maryland football. So what are you what are you uh, feeling about this transfer portal class right now? Ranked 12 in the country, um, I think five transfers right now. They got Jordan Phillips late night uh, last night, guy from Tennessee. Um, Avante Williams, former four star safety from Miami. Uh, Danella Brown, FCS All American local guy, wanted to come to Maryland, coming out of high school from St. Francis. And I just mentioned Chambers and the Jaquan Shepard from Cincy, uh, providing reinforcements in that secondary. So, what do you think of this transfer class right now? And then, kind of areas they can improve as we move forward. Maybe that offensive line, maybe that wide receiver room too. Yeah, real quick before we get into the um, we we get into the transfer portal, I just want to make another point about uh, the recruits and. Uh, the pass catchers, you know, you talk about how they always find receivers. They always develop these receivers into these star players. They don't have to be five-star recruits necessarily. Um, and that's not just for the wide receivers. That's really for the pass catch- catchers of, as a whole. Three years ago, the tight ends were non-existent in this offense. Then Chig comes along, who's, by the way, shout out Chig. He's 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 really made a name for himself in the NFL with the Titans having a somewhat of a breakout year. He should be around for a while. But, you know, when he's, when he's around that year, the tight end production – uh, skyrockets. Last year with CJ Dupree and Corey Deitchis, the, the the tight end production was huge in the in the pass game. And so I think tight ends have become a big part of this offense, and that's going to be an emphasis. And you see now that uh, um, CJ Dupree left for the transfer portal. He, he there, there, there's a hole. There's a there's a hole that needs to be filled there. And the the big the big recruit that they got was uh, AJ. I'm going to uh, botch the pronunci- pronunciation of this name, but I might not AJ, be able to see you on this one either. Sizzy Mansky, I believe, a three-star tight end from Towson, Maryland, 
Um, he's supposed to provide immediate production uh, in that tight end room and could be a replacement for CJ Dupree. And then you, you talk about um, uh, Rico Walker, who, who's who's listed as an edge. But Loxley said yesterday, some schools are recruiting him as an edge and some schools are recruiting him as a tight end. And Maryland plans to start him in the tight end room so he could replace that tight end production. So it's not just the receivers. It's really uh, the, the, the pass catchers and, and how they've been utilizing their tight ends as a whole. But to get into the transfer portal, excuse me, to get into the transfer portal real quick, I think Maryland does a perfect job with how they utilize the transfer portal. You never want to build a team through the transfer portal. You want to build a team with your recruits at the high school level. You want to develop them. But transfer portal is you plug and play based on certain needs. You look at last year, Mandarius Cowan as a linebacker came in. That was a big hole they need to fill. He had a, he was hurt a little bit throughout the year, but he had a pretty solid, uh, solid year. Perfect guy. He was from West Virginia. Jacob Copeland. Um, they wanted to provide more, get more depth in that wide receiver room. Jacob Copeland didn't really have too great of a year, but he was still a, a good transfer coming in. So that's kind of how you want to use the transfer portal. I think Loxie's done a phenomenal job with that, uh, with this class too. You talk about Tyrese Chambers. Um, they've, they, they really have like every, every position they needed to fill. I think they have in terms of the holes that they had have except the offensive line and that's the one you still and there's a lot of time left there's a ton of guys still in the transfer portal but that's the huge position that you really want to fill especially or you want to provide depth at at least especially with the departure of of spencer anderson and um jalen duncan who are your two best o-linemen so that's going to be a huge area of concern especially given the fact that Maryland's running game, when their offense was clicking, it was their running game uh, that was really leading it. You want that running game to be consistent again next year. You need a great offensive line. And uh, Talia's health was a huge concern all year. you got to keep your quarterback upright. So the offensive line is probably the biggest question mark right now coming into the season and, and in terms of what Loxley might need to address in the transfer portal. But there's still a lot of time for him to do that. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about this offensive line real quick. Um, Spencer Anderson and Jalen Duncan gone, of course, guys that are both probably NFL graded. Duncan potentially near day one, uh, started day two, and then Anderson maybe a day three pick there. Um, Jahari Branch, I I believe, is going to be gone as well, uh, exhausting his eligibility. And then uh, your two key guys bringing back, Mason Lunsford for his last year. And I think the centerpiece of, of that those returning guys, uh, Spencer Anderson called him the cornerstone of, of the O-line future, is going to be uh, DJ Glaze, Delmar Glaze there. Um, so we'll see, Sam. I mean, Andre Roy is coming back. The staff was high on him last year coming in as a freshman. He's 6'6", 320, massive guy, redshirted this year. Uh, Eric Harris had some experience at center. I think he pretty much started every game in 2021. Didn't play much this year. Not sure what happened there. Uh, but we'll see what happens with the offensive line. Uh, Colton Deary, of course, as well. Freshman. Got a ton of playing time this year. Played some center. Um, so we'll see. Um, yeah, obviously, I mean, a lot there, there is. Portal too. Yeah, to your point. I mean, there is a lot of mystery because some of these guys, like, like you said, they're freshmen or guys who just didn't get a lot of run this year because they had such a great experienced offensive line. It was all guys who had been there for four, three years and have been with Talia for a long time. So I think the experience, the lack of experience may hurt them in terms of game reps, but getting an extra year of development under some of these guys, being in the film room, still practicing and developing your game week in and week out, even in a season that you're not playing to go next year, that, that could be great for the, their development and they could end up being stars on the offensive line that people just don't necessarily know that. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Any other thoughts on the recruiting class and transfer portal before we move into some Terp soups here? Um, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's it. I think it was, it was a good class. There wasn't anything crazy, unexpected, but it was a good class. There's a lot for Maryland fans to be excited about. And, and look, the, the one area is the all season that you need to address or have really with every class moving forward is offensive line, defensive line, because you have to win in the trenches. That's where they've gotten dominated in recent times, in recent years, um, in recent games, really. Penn State, Wisconsin, going back the year before Iowa. That That's where you got to win the battles, and they haven't done that yet, so you have to win the recruiting wars there too. Without a doubt, in all eyes now, we'll turn to that offensive line, and of course, Nick Harbour, the number 11 recruit in the country, I believe, local kid, uh, will be announcing February 1st, I believe, um, it's looking like Maryland, Michigan, and South Carolina firmly in the mix. But let's move to some basketball. Wait, should we should we talk about the bowl game first? We can talk about the bowl game first uh, briefly. I know it is now eight days away in Charlotte, uh, the Duke's Mayo Bowl versus former 
ACC rival NC State. The series is tied, what, 33-33 right now? So maybe some bragging rights on the line. Who knows who's going to be out there? Maryland, of course, a lot of opt-outs and a lot of opportunities for young guys to kind of make some noise. Uh, The wide receivers specifically with now, look, Kim Jarrett's moving on. Jacob Copeland's moving on and Dante Demison moving on. So Jay Sean Jones is going to be the guy in that wide receiver room. So is Ty Felton. And then you'll have an opportunity there with some of these freshmen, Octavian Smith, Shalik Knotts, Leon Halton, who the staff is high on. And the secondary, some young guys are going to have some opportunities as well as uh, Deontay Banks is opting out there. Maybe some, some Glenn Miller we see, Gavin Gibson, um, who knows there. So what what are your biggest you know thoughts going into this bowl game now, Sam, which you know has kind of become – an exhibition over the past few years, but still a chance to get the eight wins. It still counts the same. And, and I think a chance to get some other meaningful accolades there as well. Yeah, it's, it's tough to talk about because bowl games, especially these type of bowl games, have become almost meaningless in a way for for a lot of people uh, on the outside. But for the Maryland and their staff, it's really huge because they've been practicing and an and extra month really of development since the season ended and until the bowl game is going to be. So that's huge to get young guys reps to continue to practice, to continue to, to be in that um, closed coach coached environment for these players. I mean, that's huge, but the bowl game itself, it's also an it's a chance for young guys, like you said, to get experience in real game situations. A lot of guys who have been on the bench all year, who have been backups all year, they're going to become the starters in this bowl game. And you see that kind of across the country in, in college football and a lot of these bowls. And it's an opportunity for these guys to seize the moment, prove themselves for next season, but also just get real live game reps, which will help them moving forward. I mean, you talk about the wide receivers that you expect to break out um, this season, which is or this bowl game, which is certainly possible given the amount of reps they're going to get. But last year was the running backs. You saw you saw Roman Hemby and, and Antoine Littleton have huge bowl games, and and that was huge for their confidence moving forward. And also just Maryland's momentum as a whole. I mean, they absolutely smacked Virginia Tech last year, and and that was huge. Like that was a great culmination of their first uh, bowl win in over a decade, but also the first bowl appearance in it had been in five years. So that was a great culmination. This season, it's an opportunity to do the same thing. It's really just uh, to tie up the season and, and build momentum for next season if you can get a huge win. Maryland's favored by one and a half, I believe, last time I saw the line. It's been I, I, one and two, I think. Yeah, it's NC State has lost a lot of people, um, probably even more so than Maryland. It's not. And, and NC State was a good team during the year. Don't get me wrong, but these are just not teams that, that you're playing during the college football season. It's almost its own separate one game season when you come to, when it comes to these bowl games, which is weird and interesting. I think Maryland should win. I think they're the more talented team. I think they're a better team. I think there's more continuity in terms of um, their key positions and their coaching staff, which is huge over this month period. And I think you saw that last year with Maryland, why they were so successful against Virginia Tech. So I think that's going to be a huge factor in Maryland wins the game when why Maryland wins the game. Um, but I don't really have too many thoughts other than that. It's just like so these bowl games are, they're, they're meaningful to the team and to the program, but for everyone on the outside, they're, they're almost meaningless, but everyone will play them. Everyone will watch them and they'll be fun. Yeah. I mean, Loxley calls it uh, the start of the 2023 season. Uh, I'll give you those current odds right now. DraftKings as of 1102 AM Eastern time, December 22nd, eight days before the bowl game, Maryland is minus one. The over-under is 47 and a half, and both teams are minus 110 on the money line. So expecting a bit of a toss-up. I, I kind of agree with all your points there, Sam. Um, I think it's going to be important while, you know, the game might not be as meaningful as the program and maybe some of us think. I think the fans would like to see Talia have another good game and, and end of the year on a high note because I think we we expect him to be the quarterback going into next year. Uh, Loxley does too. Talia says he hasn't made a decision yet. But I think by all means, next year will be his final year of college and it will be in a Maryland uniform as a signal caller. So maybe just get some momentum going into the year. I think it's important to mention what Loxley mentioned yesterday about how some of these early enrollees, the eight of them coming in, will actually have a chance to practice with the team given the opt-outs and given the transfers. That's really meaningful to get their first real Division One practice reps on a team that they're not even really playing for yet. I think it's a pretty cool concept and a, a good bonding method for them to be able to get closer to their teammates and kind of help this team get a win heading into 2023. And it's cool to be playing right before New Year's Eve too. Uh, pretty much a New Year's Bowl game um, in Charlotte. We'll be there, excited to get boots on the ground. But yeah, uh, exciting stuff. Uh, young guys will have an opportunity. Sam, you want to make a, a prediction here with those uh, those odds I just gave you? Yeah, um, 
I haven't really thought about it too much, but I will give you a prediction here. I'm going to say Maryland wins 35 to 24. I like that. I think I think the uh the under 47 and a half is a little too low too. I'm going to go Maryland 38. I think your boy Ryland gets a field goal in there uh, to go out on top. Uh NC State 28. So I think it's going to be a high scoring game in Charlotte. Uh defense is a little depleted for Maryland. Uh may not be the uh the biggest defensive battle we've ever seen, but the weather could play a factor. Uh we don't know 8 days away. But excited. Yeah, I, I don't, well, we'll be in Charlotte. I haven't even looked at the weather. What's the weather yeah, supposed to be down there this time of year? We should probably check that. Maybe a little rainy. Who knows? Uh, I would imagine. I would imagine warmer than uh, where we are in the uh, the Northeast right now. But yeah, Maryland, the chance to get a, get a ranked win and the year eight and five. Uh, they'd be an eight win season. Roman Heavy could be a thousand yard rusher. I think that's the number one thing I'm looking at for there personally, along with the wide receivers. So should be an exciting one at the Duke's Mayo Bowl. With that, we're going to move into some basketball talk. December 22nd right now, we're just about, I don't know, seven and a half hours away from Maryland and St. Peter's. Uh, the, the Elite Eight Cinderella team is coming to the Xfinity Center, which I'm expecting to be a lackluster crowd tonight with the students out of town. But first, unfortunately, Terps fans, we got to talk about that game eight days ago. Nine o'clock game at the Xfinity Center, Maryland-UCLA, place was rocking, and UCLA just kicked the crap out of Maryland. I mean, it wasn't even close. Uh, 87-60 final score. Was it even that close, Sam? I mean, w- what do we want to talk about here? Where do we want to start? I mean, there's nothing. There's really not a lot to talk about it. Like, I thought Kevin Willard summed it up pretty well after the game. He was like, you know, sometimes in life you just get your ass kicked. We got our ass kicked that night. Um, it happens. And <laughs> UCLA is a really good team. If anyone watched them a couple days later, play Kentucky at Madison Square Garden. Um, that Maryland game was not a fluke necessarily. I don't know if UCLA is that much better than Maryland, but that Mar- that was not a fluke. UCLA legitimately could win a national title and Maryland can't. That's the reality. That, that was the difference between the two teams. But there was a lot more at play. Um, and I was tweeting about it. Um, a lot of people were giving me some backlash saying I was being too positive and optimistic. Um, but when you when you look at that game and the stretch Maryland was coming off of, that was that, that was their fourth straight game against at the time ranked opponents in terms of when the game was against UCLA. Four straight straight games against currently ranked opponents. They had um, Illinois, which they won. Wisconsin on the road a nine p.m. tip. They lost. Uh, they, they they were down big and then they came back and it was a really close game again. But they lost against a physical Wisconsin team on the road in the Big Ten. Then they go to Tennessee, getting killed at halftime, fight all the way back of a chance to send them to overtime at the buzzer. Um, Jameer Young misses the, the bunny, and they lose that game by three. So that so that's two straight losses. And then they come to UCLA. Look, I mean, that's a really tough 12 days or whatever the span was. It was in between. I don't think another team in the entire country in December, except maybe Gonzaga, but there, there's not a Power 5 team in the country that has played... <clears throat> And I don't have this fact check, but I can almost guarantee it. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I don't think there's a power five team in the country that has um, played four straight games against currently ranked teams. I, like, I, I don't, that, ha- that doesn't exist. It's unheard of to play at any point in the season, but certainly in December when you're mixing in non-conference games in there too. So that's just brutal scheduling. scheduling and that's really what I chalked it up to. It was the product of just bad scheduling. Yeah, it was embarrassing. It was at home. It's inexcusable how bad they lost, how bad they were killed. But I think you just have to chalk it up to it was bad scheduling. And they were. it was the tail end of a brutal stretch when they knew they had an eight-day break coming up and weren't really going to play any good competition again until after the New Year's. That's what I chalk it up to because it didn't look like they have energy. I mean, from the literally from the first two minutes, you could tell this was going to be a blowout. They had no energy. Um, they didn't even with a great crowd in, in with UCLA uh, in the Xfinity Center. There, there was no energy. There was no enthusiasm. There was no the effort and the intensity that that's made Maryland eight and three so far, especially on the defensive end. It just wasn't there. Yeah, and I think it's it's worthy to note here that one uh, Tennessee and UCLA are now ranked three and four respectively in Ken Palm. So I think the analytics and the predictive based metrics are a little bit higher on these teams than maybe the AP poll is, which is always a crapshoot. Um, but yeah, and I think second, Willard will even tell you that it was a stretch since November 29th playing a, a really horrible Louis team on, Louisville team on the road, excuse me, 
but they didn't get a day off until this past weekend since then. I think late nights traveling uh, is obviously a bunch of excuses to be made and there's some validity to them. I think for me, I, I just think it's disappointing, Sam, to come out that flat in the biggest non-conference home game and I don't know, God knows how long, maybe since they joined the Big Ten. I'm not going to count that Virginia game four years ago in the ACC Big Ten Challenge, just given the fact that Maryland and Virginia played every year forever. And yes, the building was stoked to get Virginia in the building, but that's not really a true non-conference game, in my opinion. So you had a blue blood coming in your building um, at home. You were favored um, by a point or two, and they just, you know, it's completely let the opportunity slip. Another really bad shooting performance until the second half, which was unfortunate to see. And UCLA just kicked their teeth in. I mean, it was an ass-kicking, like Willard said. No one could really get anything going. It was Jameer Young's worst game as a Terp, which, you know, discouraging to see. But I don't think there's too much to, to take away from that, just given the fact that he's been the motor that's made this machine run to its best start, uh, or not its best start, to a really good start under Kevin Willard. But Tiger Campbell and, and the rest of the UCLA team was just be really physical with him. They were getting all the passing lanes. The weak side help, de- help defense by UCLA was really good as well. Um so, yeah, just just you don't throw away the field from that game because there's a lot to learn when you play a team like UCLA who then went and beat Kentucky at the Garden the next game. And I think they beat UC Davis yesterday as well. So they're riding a eight-game winning streak right now after losing those two games in Vegas. But, you know, I, I think this team probably lies, Sam. Um, I think you're in a similar sentiment to me. They're definitely not what we saw against UCLA, but I don't think they're what we saw in that, that 8-0 start, which – I mean, that St. Louis loss isn't really looking uh, that good anymore. They lost to, I think, SIU Edwardsville yesterday. Uh, not a good loss there. Um, but do you, would you agree with that sentiment, Sam, that they're somewhere in the middle? Um, probably, obviously not the number two seed in the tournament, like Andy Katz had him after beating Illinois. But, you know, they're definitely not a team that's going to lose by 30 to teams who rank top five in the country. I think that blowout, once they fell behind early, it was just that the gas tank was on empty and, and there was no coming back. Yeah, I will say that Miami win, I think, is going to look pretty good at the end yeah. of the season. Um, they had a big win over Virginia. They could compete for the ACC this year. But you're right about that St. Louis win. I would say... Had, had had the chime in there. Say the it again? A- the ACC stinks. Horrendous. Oh, yeah. They're horrible. They're going to be I, one I of the worst think, I think, I think Miami's a really good team, and Isaiah Wong is, is playing as one of the best uh, guys in America right now. He was he was a non-factor against Maryland. So, go ahead. Sorry. Um. I will say, you know, I don't. I think I do agree with you. They're somewhere in the middle between uh, that eight and no start. But I think that eight and no start was the product of like like poor scheduling, not poor scheduling from Maryland's perspective, but in terms of the competition they were playing, wasn't anything crazy. I mean, they it would have been honestly shocking if they lost. Or actually, that's not true. The Illinois game was a huge win. Miami is going to be a big win. But other than that, they took care of teams that they, they should have taken care of, of. I think coming into the year, there was zero expectation for this team to even compete to make the NCAA tournament. They were finished 10th. Um, they were predicted to finish 10th in the Big Ten Conference. Uh, there was no expectations coming in. You go to that 8-0 start, there's huge expectations. Like, oh my God, this team could win the Big Ten. This team might get a two-seed in the tournament, which were, again, ridiculous. And I think this the, that this three-game losing streak has really tempered expectations. Um, so I, I do think that it's encouraging. Like, Tennessee is a national title contender. And <clears throat> they shot horribly from... Uh, the field really the entire game from two point range, but especially from three two point range in the first half, but then three point range both halves. They were horrible shooting the ball, and they still only lost by three in a shot to win at the end. UCLA again a national title contender. They're just significantly better than Maryland. They 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 can't really Maryland's not on their on their stratosphere. Maryland's not a national title contender, even though I don't think they're as bad as as the scoreboard says or said at the end of that game. But I do think they're. They're still a good team. They're still a team on the upper echelon in the upper tier, I think. If you're going to go by tiers in the Big Ten, I think they're in the upper tier of the Big Ten. I think they still should be a, on the right side of the NSA tournament. But, um, yeah, I don't think this team's national title contender. I think they have some serious concerns. You saw how the physicality that Tennessee played with in the first half, and then UCLA played with from the jump, not just inside, but in terms of blitzing, um, and hedging on Jameer Young's ball screen, the phys- on his ball screens, the physicality really messed with him that UCLA showed. Just all around, they need to be more physical, and they don't have necessarily have the size where they're going to be a, a team that's pounding inside. But their physicality needs to uh, needs to jump up a notch against some of these really good big uh, Big Ten teams. But I'm not I'm not worried in any sense. Like 
I think people now think that Maryland's going to be on the bubble, which they might be by the end of the year. But look, Maryland's going to have the best, if not one of the best, strength of schedules in all of the country, in the entire country, especially in terms of Power 5 teams. Like They're, they're going to have played one of the best non-conference. I just talked about it. Uh, their brutal non-conference schedule, and they play in maybe the deepest conference. Probably, yes, definitely. Maybe not the best conference at the top, but the deepest conference in the entire country. So when the season's at a close in in early March, and there's discussion of who's made, who's in and who's out on the right side of the bubble, there's no question they look at strength of schedule. And Maryland's strength of schedule is going to be near the top, given the brutal schedule they're going to they have played, and they're going to be playing the rest of the year. Without a doubt, and we'll get to the Big Ten in a little bit. Kind of leads me to my next question, Sam. You talk about that physicality and how much of a problem they gave Jameer Young, but I think the front court's probably a bigger issue right now, just given the consistency. We've seen Jameer Young play well in two Big Ten games, played really well against Illinois, and kind of powered that Tennessee comeback, a really physical team there as well, um, before missing the floater to, to tie the game. But let's talk about this front court a little bit, because the size has been an issue, Um the depth of, of the front court has been an issue. Calum Swanton Rogers clearly not ready to play college basketball yet. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I think he was the last ad of the roster this year of, of scholarship players. And he's a project. I think he has a chance to maybe be decent um, one day and, and to contribute in the big 10, but it's going to take probably a year or two with Kyle Tarp and, and a year of, you know, improving his ability under Grant Billmeyer. But let's talk about this front court. Juju Reese, a little banged up with the shoulder. Um, Kevin Willard said after the UCLA game, it was a precaution, but maybe a little bit more serious than we believe. Um, he said he was kind of day by day yesterday and he's been working hard and, and, and rehabbing that shoulder and, and doing some things off the court. They they hope to have him tonight against St. Peter's, but uh, not really sure there. Now, Patrick Ramillion off the bench, serviceable defensive player, but only stands at six foot seven. And Dante Scott, who's, of course, playing that four times at the center position as well. Um, his last three games, I just want to read you minutes wise, uh, 31 against UCLA. didn't really need to play much in that second half, 37 against Tennessee and then 35 against Wisconsin and then 33 against Illinois. Do you think there's a little bit of a fatigue factor settling in from that four game stretch? Do you think that had anything to do with it? And do you yeah, think, I, how do, I how think, do you think it's Maryland has to, you know, balance these minutes in that front court moving forward? Those were Dante Scott's minutes you read, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's no question. Like, those are a ton of minutes for a guy who completely transformed his body and is in much better shape than he was in years past. But still, like, he hasn't been playing those. He's played high minutes and has high usage rates in the past, but he has not played those minutes that you just read, not even close. So, yeah, there was no doubt of fatigue. I mean, we talk about that. It's not just fatigue of playing those high minutes. You're playing those high minutes against some of the best teams in the entire country in a very short span. You're on the road for two of those games. There's this break, I think is going to benefit Dante Scott more than anyone because he looked exhausted. He was, he was back to almost what he, what you saw last year when, when he kind of got away from it in the beginning of this year, when he was settling for threes, not attacking the basket as much. Um, But Maryland needs to do a better job of getting him involved. You know, I talked about this earlier this year, but a lot of the plays they ran for him to get mid-post touches where he loves to be, loves to thrive in the mid-post. But a lot of those plays they run for him are so basic. And literally, I scouted them out and put them in my film breakdown. And I'm no expert. If I can scout them out and and recognize how basic some of these plays are, get Dante Scott touches I'm sure other teams can and you saw that with UCLA McCronin after the game talked about we simply just fronted Dante Scott in the post so when when they're figuring that out you have to get more creative to get him his touches where he thrives which is in the mid post going to that to that right or left hook really um on 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 either block and in the mid post you know you got to get him back in a role shooting the ball getting some open looks I think pick and roll I think transition looks where he is a lot of time in transition as a trail guy as a trail four some of those threes are going to be, um, some of those threes are going to be open for him, and, and maybe he'll get in a rhythm then. But yeah, I mean, look, he's the key. Like I've said it all year, you, this team is going to go as far as he goes. And when he was phenomenal early in the season, that's why this team was winning. You know, if he if he's um, if he gets a little tired as the year goes on, and he, as he did during the stretch, and isn't as productive and efficient offensively, I think this team cer- certainly offensively takes a back seat, and and they're going to struggle. Without a doubt. I mean, Dante's that that hook shot you mentioned is his bread and butter. Um, I'd recommend to anyone listening to check out that film review that Sam did earlier in the year. Kind of proves when he's at his best offensively. And we've seen him, you know, regress to the mean a little bit in, in these past few games, settling for more threes, not really getting looks and creating for himself or his teammates creating for him in the paint. Um, so we'd like to see or 
Maryland would like to see some improvement from him there. Um, I think one more thing we got to talk about, and it seems like we talk about it every week, but I think we got to talk about Don Carey's struggles. Um, you know, one for four from three again against UCLA. It was 0 for four against Tennessee. Um, he's really struggled to shoot the ball at home specifically. And I think what we saw in the second half, yes, it was garbage time, but I think we've seen it all year. Ian Martinez has taken a major step forward offensively. Yes, he's not going to shoot four for five from three every game like he did against UCLA, but he's a dynamic slasher, can create for himself, can create for his teammates. And I think he probably deserves a little bit more minutes as well, maybe take a little a piece of a, a carries minutes there. Not saying he deserves to start or anything. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. It's not for us to decide. But what, what do you think on that front there, Sam, with the – Ian Martinez's recent play, and then maybe Don Carey struggles and the balance of minutes between those two. Yeah, um, it, it, it's hard because Ian Martinez had a really good game against UCLA, but most of those baskets came in garbage time minutes. But he did shoot the ball really well. If he's shooting a consistent clip, um, I, you know, you kind of have to play him. It's almost a no-brainer that you have to be playing him over Don Don Carey if he's shooting the ball a consistent clip. But I don't think he's even half of the shooter Don Carey is. And, you know, I'm still no, waiting... And I'm still waiting for him to get hot because I do believe he's a good shooter. And cold streaks sometimes last a game, a week, a month. Sometimes they last all season. And that just might it might end up being that type of season for Don Carey, even though he is a great shooter. Um, but if if he's gonna need to turn around for this Maryland team to to go where they're capable of going and be as good as they keep their as they are, because like I've talked about this all year on this podcast, like even if he's not making shots, he's still a threat being out there because he's not a guy you can ever leave open because if he does make one or two, he could get really hot because he has a nice stroke. So he still needs to be accounted for defensively. It's not like you're leaving him open if he's not making shots, but he still, he still needs, he still needs to knock him down at the end of the day. Um, And you know, it's, it's, it's tough because he's, he's just struggling shooting the ball when he has a really nice stroke and he's, he's been a great three point shooter in the last few years of his college career. But he just has come to Maryland, and he's he's had a few good games on the road, but especially in Xfinity Center, he just hasn't been good shooting the ball. Um, it, so it's tough, you know. This whole team, like we talk about the front court depth and their play style, this team to win, they don't have front court depth. Like we've seen it with Julian Reese, he's not a guy that you're ever running a play for for him to get post touches on the block. You know, most of his baskets are kind of clean up points off rebounds or or dimes off a pick and roll or someone just kind of finding him in the lane. He's not a guy that you're running to to so he doesn't have he has offensive skill but he doesn't have um necessarily consistent post moves where he can score on guys who are his size or bigger than them. And he we've seen it, we've talked about it that he hasn't he doesn't have a shot outside anymore. His free throws struggle struggled a little bit. His shot looks completely different. So when you talk about this front court depth um, he he's the guy obviously at center, but this you can't be relying on score on getting your points in on post touches or in the lane. You and in order in order to to fit that play style based on your personnel, you have to play fast, and that's what Maryland's tried to do. We saw it more earlier in this year. They've been playing a little slower recently, but they're try, you're, when you try to press, you're inevitably going to be playing faster at a high pace. And I think that's going to benefit um this team. And it's, this is going to be the most basic breakdown in the history of basketball, but you have to make shots like like the corny saying like it's a it's a make or miss league like this team and Willard has kind of said it to beat good teams this team has to shoot the ball better than it has and it has to shoot the ball um consistently especially from three if it's not it's gonna it's gonna have to really lock in defensively and have one of its most its best defensive seasons that Willard's ever had and he's had some good defensive teams but you, you got to make shots it's as simple as that yeah and that's kind of the last thing I wanted to touch on here with this team in its current state, 31.8% from three, that's 253rd from three point range. uh, According to Ken Palm, that is really not going to cut it, especially when you're a team that Kevin Willard says you can do whatever the hell you want on defenses or whatever the hell you want on offense. Excuse me. You definitely can't do that on defense. As long as you give 120% effort on on the defensive end. And we've seen that. and, And the offense has succeeded as a byproduct of that. His first eight games, and the shooting has really struggled in the past three games, which kind of leads me to this small point here. Noah Batcher being a freshman, Ike Cornish being a redshirt freshman, Willard has mentioned at times he's wanted to extend his rotation to nine, but hasn't been able to in these last four games. I'd expect one, if not both of them, to get a lot of minutes tonight and in that next game against UMBC on December 29th. Do you think there's an opportunity for either of those guys to contribute this year? Because especially with Noah, we've seen he's got a nice stroke and he can really – you know, 
it, there's a physicality aspect of that when you get to the Big Ten. That's a worry. But do you think there's an opportunity for either of those guys to maybe get some more minutes going forward than <clears throat> as the year wraps up here? Maybe. And if they are going to, I think these next two games against St. Peter's and UMBC are going to be the games where they can prove themselves because you don't throw someone into the fire at Michigan or against a, a great uh, ruck at Rutgers, a very hostile environment, or, or against Ohio State or something like that. You don't throw those guys who don't have a lot of meaningful minutes experience at the collegiate level. You don't just throw them into the fire against some of those good teams, especially if you're only going to give them short shifts. So I do think if they do play a lot to, in these next two games, starting with St. Peter's tonight, and then and they do play at a high level and contribute, because we saw them both in those garbage time minutes against UCLA. They both shot the ball well. They were both looked like very good players who could contribute. Um, I, So I, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen, but if they do perform at a high level, then yeah, they may get more opportunities as the year goes on um, in Big Ten play. And if they continue to prove themselves, if either of those guys can give you a solid six to eight minute shift shift in a game and give some, some starters a breather, that'll be huge. But they need to play defense at a high level. And a lot of times freshmen, freshmen get lost at defense. They're not as good as following the game plan because they don't have as much experience with game plans. So that's tough. And, and, but if they're making shots, like it's going to be hard not to play them. Without a doubt, it will be interesting these two games. I don't think there's going to be anything decided there. But like I said, and like you said, we're probably going to see him play a lot tonight and then next Thursday as well against UMBC. So interesting there. Um, I want to take a step back here, Sam, and kind of just reset where this Maryland team stands, both in the country and the Big Ten. Obviously, 26 in the AP poll now, fell out of it. Um, still 23 in the coaches poll, still ranked there. Also 23 in Ken Palm, and then the all-important net rankings, which don't really matter right now if you look at teams like Sam Houston and Southern Miss ahead of Maryland, but Maryland ranks 28th in the net. Um, in Big Ten in general, um, Sam, what, what do you – the New Year's approaching two non-conference games left. They're one and one right now in Big Ten play. Still 18 more games to go. Ken Palm projects them to finish 11 and nine in the conference. Where do you think they stand right now? And what's encouraging about this team's prospects heading into the heart of conference play? Yeah, I mean, what's encouraging is what you saw earlier in the season, where if they're playing phenomenal defense and they're playing with a ton of intensity a ton of effort on defense i think they can be in any single game they play in the big 10 i really i even against purdue even against some of these better teams in the country but you know when they're playing with the intensity that they need to defensively and then the physicality that you kind of saw earlier on in the season in terms of building a wall um taking away driving driving lanes rebounding as a unit as a team because they're not a particularly big team so you kind of need to re- you need all five guys to to crash the defensive glass and rebound if they can do that at a high level um i think they'll be in any game and then it really comes down to 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 their offensive production and, and it comes down to are they going to make shots and and be a good three point shooting team if not it's going to be it's going to be a struggle to score a lot of points even when they're playing with a ton of pace playing fast in transition um but i, I want to see this team Press. <clears throat> I want to see this team when they make baskets, get a full court press. Um, get, try to create turnovers that can kind of um, expedite your offense and and move and have your offense move at a higher rate. But also, it comes down to the most consistent players and Dante Scott and Akeem Hart. If they continue or kind of get back into the, the consistent groove they were in, where they're each scoring fourteen to eighteen points a game, and Jameer Young is doing the same thing and going back to the true point guard um, that he was through the first nine, even 10 games before the UCLA game. I think this team's going to be a good spot to compete with, <clears throat> with almost any team in the big 10, but really, um, I, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the big 10 this year is they're so deep. Like there's no gimme wins. Like even you look at like a Penn state team, that could be a tournament team this year, like Rutgers, Rutgers are a good team. They've had some bad losses this season, but especially when you're playing at Rutgers, it's a very hostile environment, hard place to play. Iowa had a brutal loss, brutal loss, but that's not a yesterday, which we could talk about, but that's not a, a easy win by any means. I was still a good team. Even I look at a Nebraska team and I'm like, this isn't this isn't like a guaranteed win. Like even last year you saw Maryland who wasn't good at all. You saw Nebraska on the schedule, you're like, okay, easy win. You don't see that this year. Maybe Minnesota's probably the worst team in the Big Ten, which is the only guaranteed win, I think you could say. But this is a really deep conference and there's gonna be no gimme night. So you really need to you, there's no like nights you can take off like they did against UCLA. Um but there's gonna be some tough stretches and you kind of need to uh, you need to, at least if your defense is consistent throughout the entire season, I think they'll be in a good spot. 
I agree. And I think with that point you make about the depth of the Big Ten, 12 of the 14 teams are in the top 46 in the country right now in Ken Palm. Nebraska's 88. That's still a top 100 team. Going to be a tough game on the road. And then Minnesota down at 181. Uh, Nebraska beat Creighton. That's, that's, that's a good team. And, and I think Nebraska is going to be dangerous as well. I agree with both your points you made about what to watch about going into the Big Ten play. Press, I think I think this team's press was his identity early on, and it's going to need to become its identity in Big Ten play because the Big Ten is, is such a big man's league. You're not going to beat the Zach Eadies, the Hunter Dickinsons, the Trace Jackson Davises of the world down down low inside with Juju Reese and, and Patrick Million. You're just not. Um, so you got to be able to speed up the game, play fast like the goal was going into the year, and maybe pick off some teams here or there. Who knows? Um, and then I think the shooting, of course, has to get better. Um with Maryland, you know, 253rd in the in the country is really not going to cut it. And the consistency, like you mentioned, that was your second point. Dante Scott's got to be the consistent star. Maryland expects him to be Hakeem Hart. I think the thing with Hakeem is you notice when he's playing well, he's going under the radar. But I think it can be said for the last few games when he's not playing well, it's also going under the radar. You're going to need him to be consistent as well because those two guys are just so important to your success. And then Jameer Young, yes, he had the tough game against UCLA, but he proved he could do it against Tennessee, against uh, Illinois, and then against Wisconsin as well. So I think this guy is probably a bona fide uh, Big Ten point guard as well. He may have some tough nights here and there, as a lot of Big Ten point guards do. But we'll see there. I think those points are definitely valid to make heading into Big Ten play, uh, which will start January 1st at Michigan. Um, Should we talk about that early, that first few games, that stretch in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I, we're, we'll probably be at Rutgers, I'd assume, January 5th to cover that game in person. Uh, not a far trip for either of us. And then January 1st at Michigan. Um, you know, New Year's Day is is usually a college, fo- uh, college football holiday. It falls on a Sunday this year. Um, so the NFL and college basketball take the reins there. At Michigan, the start Big Ten play right now, projected to lose 74-73. Um, this Michigan team, uh, starting point guard Jalen Llewellyn, uh, transfer for instance, is going to be out for the year with a knee injury. I watched them last night against North Carolina. They battled. I think North Carolina is finally finding their footing, by the way. I'd say they're, they'd be top three favorite going into the ACC, falling from preseason number one to losing, what, five games in a row. But I, I think this Michigan team – is going to go through its ups and downs. Um, I think Juwan Howard has kind of proven that he's got gotten this team to play its best basketball when it matters most. Um, and, and of course, anytime Maryland goes against Hunter Dickinson, it's going to be a story. And then, of course, Rutgers four days later, the rack. I know it's Jersey Mike's arena now. I'm going to refuse to call it that. It is the rack. Um, always a tough place to play for road opponents, and it seems like no one wins there. So a really brutal stretch to resume Big Ten play there with two of the most difficult road games you'll play all year. Yeah, it really is a tough stretch to not start Big Ten play, but really get in the heart of it. I don't think this Michigan team is that good. Like, I I don't see this as a game that Maryland's going to have a tough time winning. But I I do at Michigan, um, New Year's Day, it's going to be tough just given the fact that they play them uh, twice this season. I think it's it's inevitable that it's going to be a split. I think more likely Maryland loses at Michigan and the wins at home. But then they go to Rutgers which we know Rutgers' record in the Big Ten at home is really good. Um, I don't think it's January 5th, so I don't think any students are going to be there, so there's not really going to be a student section. I mean, there might be, but not what it would be if, if classes were in session. So I don't think it's going to be the the normal environment that you see at the what was the rack and now is the Jersey Mike's Arena. Um, so I don't think it's going to be that type of crazy environment. So I think Maryland is certainly capable of it, capable and should be favored even on the road at Rutgers. And then you you head back home. Uh, for the first time in the new year, and you have a really good Ohio State team. That's going to be a tough game. Um, and then just going down the schedule a little bit, you have at Iowa, uh, you have Michigan at home, which is going to be Hunter Dickinson's return game, and that should be. That's January 19th. Classes don't necessarily start yet, but I think there's going to be a good student section there. I think that's going to be one of those those packed games um, for Maryland, and, and Hunter Dickinson is sure going to hear a lot, a lot of boos, a lot of heckles from Maryland fans, which I'm sure he's expecting. He's he's kind of been asking asking for it. And then you go on the road at Purdue. Um, so it's really a tough stretch. Like there's no gimmies, and it's going to be tough to kind of figure out where this team, where this team's potential is in the Big Ten. Like, are they going to be a top four team? I think they have the talent in their starting lineup to be the question, and they have the defense and and the intensity to be on that end of the floor. The question is, are they going to be consistent offensively? Are they going to be knocking down threes at a, at a consistent rate? That that's 
that's really the deciding factor for me. It's it's going to be the three point battle night in and night out. And are they going to win that? And if they do, I think they can be in any game and really win any game in the Big Ten. I agree. I I think with all those points we made, three point battle, uh, the press. Um, so we'll we'll see. I, I think the the Big Ten is is going to be a brutal league like it always is. Um, you want to make some predictions for that? I guess three game stretch in, in the first eight days of January with Michigan on the road, Rutgers on the road and Ohio state at home. What do you, what do you think the record will end up being there? Just those first three games. Just those first three. And then, cause then there's that, uh, that week off before Iowa things, things can change. I think, I think uh, our perceptions change every week on this podcast. So we'll go, we'll go. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because three. like after eight and O's, like you didn't see a loss on their schedule. Now it's three game losing streak. Your expectations are completely tempered. It's it's I honestly want to see what they look like and kind of the stuff they run and how to get how they get back in the groove against these two um these two games before the new year hits in St. Peter's and UMBC obviously weaker opponents not even on the ca- same level as Maryland but uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can get back in a rhythm in terms of the three ball in terms of running offensive stats if they're re-energized after an eight day break. Um, it's, I think in that first three game stretch, I think they're going to go one and two. I think they lose at Michigan on new year's day. I think they beat Rutgers on the road and I think they lose at home to Ohio state. So I think they go one and two in that stretch, but, but stretching it out even a little more, I think they beat Iowa on the road and they beat Michigan back home. So in that first five game stretch in the big 10, I could see them finishing three and two. Yeah, I think one and two is probably accurate in that stretch too. I think they find a way to win at Michigan in front of, you know, I'm assuming not a good student section on, on January 1st. I'd be shocked. Um, but actually, Michigan does start classes January 4th, which is uh, crazy. Crazy. I heard that last night. Crazy fact. Um, I think January 4th, they do? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, what is that? Uh, middle of the week? It's January 4th, 5th, I don't know, something like that. But it's early. Um, they're going to lose at Michigan. I, or, sorry, they're going to win at Michigan, like I just said. Um, I think they're going to lose at Rockers. I think Rockers will just find a way to have a good crowd and it's just – that place the House of Horrors. Um, I think they'll beat Ohio State at home. Wait, so that'd be two and one in that stretch for me. Sorry, I think they're going to go two and one in that stretch. Um, I think they'll probably lose on the road to Iowa and then beat Michigan at home. So maybe th- I think three two three and two that first five game stretch. Is that is that what you had as well? I know we had some different yeah, results. Yeah, three and two that first five game stretch. And I think I think uh, Maryland fans would probably be pleased with that. And, and just well, real quick, you go ten and ten in Big Ten play, you'll be on the right side of the bubble. I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I could see them finishing even a little bit over five hundred, um, in the Big Ten, and and that's gonna that might start out rough though, because you look at their stretch, how they finished the season at Nebraska against Minnesota against, um, or excuse me, at home against Minnesota, at home against Northwestern, at Ohio State, but that second time you play them this year, and then at Penn State. Um, which they struggled at a little bit, but that'll be the second time they play them this year. That that's that's a four and one stretch in those last five games. So Maryland may like in mid February be it may look like they're on the wrong side of the bubble. It may look like things are going down, but that that's their easiest stretch of the season is or in terms of Big Ten play is those last five games. So that could be a four and one stretch right there when they're really desperate and they kind of need to 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 secure their place in the NCAA tournament. Um, but you know, a lot can change. Like the thing about this Maryland team is they are so thin that they're an injury away from one of those top four guys. Uh, they're an injury away from one of those top four guys to the, the season completely derailing and them not having a chance at the tournament. That's that's so like things change. We're we're months away from that, but it's just interesting to think about that. Yeah, that would be brutal if something like that happened. But I agree to get um, Minnesota, Northwestern, and, and Penn State in three of your last four games i think penn state's probably a tournament team but to get those teams in that stretch where the big 10 is so good i think is is going to be beneficial to the team um all right so we'll we'll wrap up our basketball talk there real quick sam how many points does maryland win by tonight against st peter's at home i haven't seen a line what was the line i think 21 and a half i saw yesterday yeah i I think they should win by around 20 yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Maryland by 25. Um, don't need an exact score there. Yeah, I mean, this is not the St. Peter's team that made a magical run. Like, no, it's definitely not. And you could you could check out that preview I wrote on TestedWithTimes.com. Pretty much the whole team was gutted last year, so um, we'll see what happens tonight. Uh, let's move on to uh, our final segment here. Something new, something we're excited about. Since this will be our last episode of 2022, we're gonna do some end of year superlatives here. Um, five awards we're gonna give out. 
Um, we're going to start here with the Terp slash player of the year, Terp of the year, uh, going to a player. And uh, Sam, I think we'll probably have the same one here. Uh, we don't know each other's picks, but uh, you can start it off here. Who's your Terp of the year? Yeah, it was a pretty obvious choice. Um, Logan Wisnowskis, he was the most dominant player on the most dominant team in, in men's lacrosse. He was phenomenal all season, won every award you could possibly have won in lacrosse, won the national championship. Um, he was just phenomenal. He was the best overall player all year. And um, yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt in my mind it was the answer was him. I agree. It has to be Logan Wisnowskis. I mean, he led arguably the best team of all time in lacrosse history. Um, you know, they lost one game these last two years, and that was in last year's national championship. Obviously, went undefeated this year. Number one in the PLL draft. I mean, the man was nominated for an SB award for the best college male athlete. Um, so of course he has to be the Terp of the year by default. 61 goals, 42 assists last year. I mean, just just an absolute behemoth of a year. Um, one of the best we'll see. Um, so yeah, easy choice there. Coach of the year, Sam. Uh, might be a similar wavelength for me here. Who who do you have as your? Yeah, I, I I I know who you're gonna say, and I know who the obvious answer is. Um, but I wanted to give it to someone who isn't an obvious answer. Like I'm sure yours will be Tillman. Um. And rightfully so. And that was mine originally. Like you could give it to Tillman. He's been obviously he was the coach of the that if we did a best team award, the best overall team, it's no doubt men's lacrosse undefeated national championships. He was the coach of the the best team, especially after losing the previous year and after they were undefeated going to the national championship. They lost that comeback. And, and win the national championship as an undefeated champion. He's a phenomenal coach, but he's been here forever. Everyone, know, everyone knows how great of a coach he is. Um, thought about Brenda Freeze. Everyone knows how great of a coach she is. I'm going with Rob Vaughn, um, the head coach of of the baseball team here, who's, who's had five seasons um, as a head coach here. And, and this past season was his best one yet. Maryland was phenomenal all year. They hosted a regional. They had a college park regional for, I don't know if it was the first time in history, but the first time it was the first time in history. Yeah, it was the first time in history that they hosted um, a, a college park regional. They hadn't been even in a regional since 2015. So he's done a phenomenal job of kind of turning this program over, making it a hot spot um, for recruits um, really across across the Northeast and even in the South competing uh, with some of the, some of the tops because baseball is – Oh, as the SEC always dominates baseball, but Rob Vaughn um, has has got his team towards the top of the Big Ten. They won a Big Ten regular season champion. They had incredible moments throughout the year. Uh, they had a, a perfect game, or it was a no hitter perfect game. Um, I can't remember exactly, but one of those. Rob Vaughn was just a phenomenal coach. Those guys love playing for him. I covered that team for a year, a couple of years ago. Um, they, they just love playing for him. He's done a phenomenal job with them all season, uh, and he, he's he's the coach of the year for me. I think that is a great choice, and I didn't want to get into too much. I kind of wanted to diversify my selections here because I will be talking about baseball in a little bit. But my coach of the year has to be John Tillman. You are correct. I think the guy's a lacrosse legend. He secured that second national title, was uh, coach of the year in in all of college lacrosse, led the best team ever. I mean, the team's lost one game in the last two years. I mean, what he's been able to accomplish – in both recruiting talent, developing talent, and just winning on the field. I mean, the Big Ten has really gotten better since he joined the conference, and we said this with a lot of non-revenue sports. I think men's lacrosse might be the epitome of that. You're seeing schools like Ohio State and Michigan um, competing, Rutgers even. Um, But, yeah, I I just think it was a special year, and I I couldn't go anywhere else because John Tillman is a Maryland legend, a lacrosse legend, and he is my coach of the year. Um, so, so far, we both had Wisnowskis as our Terp of the Year for players, uh, and you had Rob Vaughn, a great choice for Coach of the Year. I had John Tillman. Let's move to the game slash moment of the year, Sam. Who did you have here? Yeah, I, I wrote something down, and now I was talking about Rob Vaughn and baseball. Um, it's hard to not give um, Ryan Ramsey's perfect game. Is that what you had? Uh, no, it's no, not. Never mind. So, so I'm going to do a tie. I'm going to do a tie then because it's hard not to give um, Ryan Ramsey's perfect game. Um, you know, he like he had a perfect game as a collegiate pitcher. That's rarely, rarely ever happens um, on October. It was late. It was late April, I believe, um, towards kind of the end of the season at home. Uh, just an incredibly memorable time. And that was kind of when Maryland baseball, like you knew this team was special. You knew the season was going to be special. Um, even though they'd been winning at a very high rate all season. Um, but th- that was an incredible moment, incredible game. But the tie is with 
Um, this is probably this is what I had written down. It's probably a little bit of recency bias, but that Maryland basketball win over Illinois um, earlier this season, a few weeks ago, that was Maryland basketball has gone through so much change, um, through so so much controversy. I don't know if controversy is the right right word, but a lot of just chaos over the last couple of years, and a lot of people were really down on the program, and the program really was in the gutter. I mean, they had their worst season last year in almost thirty years. Uh, you bring back or you bring in Kevin Willard, who revives the program, brings life into the program. They were 7-0 heading into that game. And then they a really good Illinois team that may win the Big Ten, could be a national title contender, even though they're a little young. That was like the atmosphere. The, it was an incredible game. Jimmy Young ices the game from three-point range with only a few seconds to go. Just a phenomenal game from top to bottom. And it was like, that was the moment where you're like, Maryland men's basketball, not, you know, it, it was a few years ago. It was only three years ago where they, where they won a Big Ten regular season title, but every it feels like ten years ago. Everything they've gone through, gone through the last couple of years, and all the change. That was a moment in the game where you felt like Maryland men's basketball was back. So that that was my moment in game of the year. I agree. I think that kind of just encapsulated the feeling of look, this team is eight. No, they were voted tenth or eleventh in the preseason poll, and and Willard has kind of brought back the fan base and and the the Maryland faithful, and, and certainly a great moment. One of the uh, most electric. Moments of the Xfinity Center in the last few years, for sure. My game slash moment of the year, I wanted to harp on moment when we were discussing these superlatives. It's got to be Maryland baseball hosting their first ever NCAA regional. I understand they didn't make it out of it, but look, they won the Big Ten. There were doubts all year that the Bob um, uh, to Shipley Field at, at Bob Turtle Smith Stadium would have the facilities and would be capable of hosting ESPN and, and three other teams for an NCAA regional. They proved everyone wrong. I know there are rumors of Nats Park, maybe playing at Cal Ripken Park at, at Aberdeen. That would have been brutal. They made it happen in College Park. We know people who went back for that game for those games and, and wanted to be a part of that electric environment. It was electric. Um, obviously, they didn't win, but it put the program on the map. I think it was big in proving to Rob Vaughn, your coach of the year, that yeah, other programs definitely tried to poach him after the year, but what you can do there can be done at Maryland. You hosted an NCAA regional, and if they won that, they would have hosted a super regional with a chance to get to the College World Series. Um, so I think, like you talk about with Jameer Young's shot, kind of putting that Maryland men's basketball program back into national relevancy. I think hosting the regional put Maryland baseball into national relevancy. Yeah, that's a good one. That was an electric atmosphere, and I, I wasn't there, but you could just feel it on TV. And I've been to that stadium a bunch. That, that was an awesome atmosphere. Without a doubt. Um, so we will move on to our penultimate superlative. We're going to go with the Maryland play of the year. What'd you have here, Sam? Yeah, so I have um, maybe a little bit, again, a little bit of recency bias. I'm not thinking back too far, even though it's it's been 12 months. But I'm going to go Diamond Miller's buzzer beater um, over Notre Dame uh, a few weeks ago. Just the play. Well, this was our play of the year, right? Yep. Yeah, so just the play was a phenomenal look. First, Maryland has been an up and down. They've had an up. Maryland women's basketball has had an up and down um, season so far this year, but they they've beaten Notre Dame, a very good team, national title contender. They've beaten a depleted UConn team, but still UConn. First time they beat UConn. Um, but they've had some bad losses. I mean, they they had their first ever loss to Nebraska in the Big Ten, and they got killed. So they've had some bad losses. Um, but this was just a phenomenal. Uh, play like a beautiful move from Diamond Miller, just ice the game at the buzzer beater to beat a really good team. And then, of course, a few couple weeks later, but games later, Cheyenne Sellers hit a buzzer beater again. Um, uh, to to in a in dramatic fashion. So they've had some phenomenal games all year. But just this entire play, the buzz it garnered, they got a lot of national attention. Of course, Kevin Durant tweeted about it. He was watching the game. He was like, um, nice move. Um, and at Diamond Miller. It was phenomenal, phenomenal play, phenomenal moment. That that was my play of the year. Yeah, that was my play of the year as well. I think had to bring in some recency bias, and that play was just sick. Faith Masona setting the screen, Diamond Miller off one leg, fade away at the buzzer, beating a national title contender in in a tumultuous start for that team. I think that was a really big moment and, and kind of helped them turn the season around a little bit, beat UConn at home, uh, big-time win there. I think – since you gave a tie, I'm going to give an honorable mention here for play of the year. I think at that baseball regional, uh, that Sunday night game to force the game seven, force the winner take all to go to the uh, super regional was Nick LaRusso 
just launching a bomb opposite field off the wall. It only ended up being a single, but it was a walk-off, and, and that place went bananas against UConn. So that'll be my honorable mention there, but I think it's hard what, to What say. about the, the horrible call at first base by that ump? Yeah, that was the next game. I I, I mean, if, if we're going to give the worst call of the year, I think that'll be up there, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll hold that one out for the, uh, the viewer's sake. Um, but, yeah, we're moving on to our last one here. I have a feeling this one might be a little similar for us. But the recruit of the year for Maryland, which yeah, recruit has been most impactful um, in their respective sport? Yeah, I thought that's how I interpreted it too, and not like a recruit that's coming in, a recruit that came in and, and was a freshman this past season. Um, and I said Jay Sean Barham uh, for Maryland football. Uh, you know, he he when that was huge for Mike Loxley when he came in, just not it, just in terms of the aura around the recruit. He originally committed to South Carolina, and of course. That was kind of the start of a lot of beef between South Carolina fans and even Shane Beamer and Maryland yeah. and Maryland fans back to South Carolina. Um, but, you know, he was committed to South Carolina. Loxley flipped him at the, the last day and he ended up signing with Maryland and he was phenomenal. I mean, that was huge just for and look, Maryland's had a lot of uh, they've had a bunch, actually, of five star linebackers come in over the years and have been great recruits, but they left after the first year. As of now, Jay Sean Barham seem, uh, seemingly seems to be coming back uh, next year. And so he had a phenomenal year. He might have been the best overall player on the defense, a really high-graded recruit, um, lived up to every ounce of the hype. It was just a huge moment for Maryland. They could have they, they could flip someone like that from an SEC school, uh, convince them to come to Maryland the last moment, and, and he was just phenomenal and should be a big part of the future next year and moving forward. Without a doubt, I think that's a really, really good choice. I'm happy I took a little bit of a different look at this one so we could have another uh, different superlative award here. I'm going with Jameer Young. I, I took the transfer portal recruit route. I think for him to be Willard's point guard in year one, I mean, no guy more perfect for it. The first guy from the Matha to play for the program since Travis Garrison arrived in 2002. So it had been 20 years since they had a DeMatha recruit. Uh, Jameer Young's talked about how crazy that is and how he certainly takes pride in that. And hopefully it's it's something that changes in the future because that's kind of where Hunter Dickinson's beef with Maryland lies there as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's the team's leading scorer right now, an absolute game-changing point guard. I understand he had that tough game against UCLA, but he had that signature moment against Illinois like you talked about with that, you know, that tie for moment of the year for you. So I'm going to take a little bit of a different route. Recruiting out of the portal – um, I mean, just what a necessary ad he's been to this team and, and just that dynamic in general. Um, so end of the year uh, for you, your player of the year was Logan Wisnowskis, as was mine. Um, coach of the year, yours was Rob Vaughn, uh, got awarded that extension after the year. Mine was John Tillman. Um, I think both good choices there. Uh, game slash moment of the year, you had Ryan Ramsey, perfect game 1A, and then that Illinois win and, and Jameer Young's shot as 1B. I had Maryland baseball hosting its first ever NCAA regional uh, play of the year. We both had Diamond Miller step back buzzer beater. I gave a little honorable mention there to Nick LaRusso. And then, of course, recruit of the year, um, you had Jay Sean Barham. I had Jameer Young. I think we did pretty well here. Uh, w- yeah, w- man, I think w- we covered w- some w- ground. What your grades for, uh, for how we did? I would say A+. Plus. I think we deserve that. I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to almost go back to the memory bank, even though it's only been like 12 months. But from in the middle of some seasons in January to December. um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, I think we did good. I, I think a plus as well there. Um, All right. So that'll wrap up our final episode of 2022. We'll see you in 2023. I'm sure we'll be completely different people after our, our new year's resolutions and, yeah. and everything there new year new po- new podcast new <laughs> us maybe some new guests hopefully some new guests we'll we'll be working on that as we get into the thick of uh maryland men's basketball season and, and spring sports or, or soon enough before we know it but uh everyone happy holidays happy hanukkah merry christmas um enjoy the time with your family and friends and uh enjoy watching some maryland athletics game tonight against saint peter's game against umbc 29th for the men and then december 30th the duke's mayo bowl maybe we can see locks get uh dousing some mayo after the win but uh thank you guys for listening happy holidays